They're the biggest girl group in history. Five women who changed the face of pop music through the magic of girl power. But the ride to the top was far from smooth. Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. Hello, Sarah McDonald. Hello, hello. It is part two of three of our Spice Girls scandal. And boy, lots to cover in this episode. And so much. Spoiler alert, we're basically only covering one year. Well, we are. And also, guys, happy New Year's. Oh, this sorry, is dropping yeah. <laughs> on New Year's Day. We hope you're excited for the sugar and the literal spice. We are covering one year in Spice Girls lore today because it's a jam-packed year. 1997. Before we get to 1997, though, we probably need to quickly recap what we spoke about in our last episode, Mish, because we spoke about the formation of the Spice Girls. They were formed after a newspaper ad was published asking for young, budding dancers and singers. The band was originally called Touch. They were managed by two guys from a management company called Heart Management, also a rich dude named Chick Murphy. <laughs> now, these three guys were kind of idiots because they didn't put the girls into a contract. No, and they didn't want them under a contract in the early days because they had this misguided belief that if the Spice Girls were locked into a contract, they wouldn't work hard enough. And therefore, they kind of kept a contract like a carrot dangling in front of them, trying to get the girls to work as hard as possible. Only, this was a foolish move, and they clearly underestimated these five women in particular, Jerry, because Jerry knew what they had. Jerry had hustle as well. Yeah. I said that in the last episode. Like she had, she was really innovative and like very savvy when it came to business. And she essentially led the girls to set the wheels in motion to secure themselves one of the best managers in the world who then set themselves up with serious record deals. Now, they also had this like very stealth attempt to get the recording of Wannabe, the original <laughs> physical recording of Wannabe. I think it ended up in um, Jerry's underpants. Yeah, from Heart Management when they <laughs> left. I think it was like a demo that they really knew was going to be huge. They would flash mob offices of record labels in order to get that said record deal. And they harnessed girl power to get the deal of their dreams. Yeah. So they signed on, as you said, with one of the biggest managers and then the biggest labels in the world. They formed unique identities under the nicknames Baby, Scary, Ginger, Sporty and Posh. They debuted Wannabe as their very first single. And all of a sudden, they were worldwide famous. We are rewinding back to that moment. It's 1996, Zara, and the Spice Girls are everywhere. Alrighty, Mish. So we spent our last episode going through the Spice Girls' rise to fame, finishing up just as Wannabe was released. Let's have a look at what happened next. To this day, Wannabe is the biggest song ever released in the UK by a girl group, and it remains one of the best-selling singles of all time globally. Obviously, the song made them pretty rich very quickly. And it's interesting, Mish, because it obviously wasn't like that in the early years of the band. They were originally living in Chick Murphy's house. They weren't mm. making a lot of cash. So this kind of rise to fame, though they had put a lot of years in and it wasn't like overnight success, I think in many ways the money was overnight. Absolutely. So as we now know, in July 1996, their lives completely changed, not just because they were, you know, the band and the voices behind Wannabe, but because they were co-writers on the song too. So to put that in really layman's terms, 
these women were getting way more royalties because they were both co-writers and performers. So essentially, they're reaping double the amount of benefits. Yeah. So the girls were everywhere by the end of 1996. And part of their appeal, I think, was definitely how kind of chaotic they were. I think there's one thing that I didn't really understand about the Spice Girls because I was too young, and that was just how rogue Mm. they were, particularly in interviews. I mean, most of the time, their chaotic attitude and kind of chaotic way of being in the media worked in their favour. But on one occasion, things didn't quite go as planned. This story is weird. It's weird. So (laughs) in December 1996, the Spice Girls were interviewed by The Spectator, Mish. Yeah. If you haven't heard of The Spectator, it's a pretty conservative news magazine. It's also often a bit of a launching pad for right-wing politicians in the UK. For example, former Conservative Prime Minister Boris Johnson was the editor of The Spectator from 1999 through to 2005. So if it feels a little weird that The Spectator would want to interview the Spice Girls, you're correct. It is a little weird. We don't really know how to make sense of it. But I think it probably demonstrates just how much The UK media wanted the Spice Girls everywhere all the time. Well, and the Spice Girls are happy to oblige. So the Spectator did a bit of a tongue-in-cheek angle with the tone of the piece, though. Overall, it seems the writer Simon Seabag Montefiore was surprised by how willing, though, the girls were to talk about politics. Yeah, we're getting pop stars on politics. Yeah, which I think doesn't happen now, but I reckon it probably would have happened far less in 1996. Now, as the interview transpired, Simon was even more pleased by the realisation that at least two, if not three of the Spice Girls held pretty conservative views, which was very aligned with what The Spectator was about. Yeah. So let's go over some of the main quotes from this interview. It is a pretty dense one, but we're going to pull out the highlights. But I also think the fact that the quotes are dense are really fascinating because it's like, what are the Spice Girls? I mean, I don't want to sit here and say that people shouldn't talk about politics, but it just reading this, it feels off brand. hundred percent. Here's what Posh Spice or Victoria Beckham said about the idea of Britain joining the European single currency and therefore abandoning the pound as their currency in favour of the euro. Obviously, this is all very pre-Brexit, but it feels kind of reminiscent of Brexit. Yeah, exactly. So she said, The whole European federal plan is ridiculous. We are patriotic. The single currency is an outrage. We want the Queen's head, or the King's head if we have a king, on our own coins. The Euro bureaucrats are destroying every bit of national identity and individuality. Let me give you an example. Those new passports are revolting, an insult to our kingdom, our independence. We must keep our national individuality. So there's a lot going on there. Look. I also want to flag, you know, perhaps not as aligned with my own politics, Mm. some of the quotes coming up here, but also should go without saying that people are allowed their own opinion. I don't want to like shut down conversation and pretend that it's so wild that someone holds conservative views. I'm trying to like walk a line Well, it's not like she's saying anything that's outright offensive. It's just... It's a very of, nationalistic approach, which is very conservative. Yeah, and I think what we know of a nationalistic approach is that it can lead to more dangerous ideas. Now, Jerry also had some thoughts on Britain's potential shift to the single currency <laughs> as well. So she said, We travel throughout Europe. All those countries look the same. Only England looks different. That is why the Spice Girls are profoundly suspicious of Europe. <laughs> 
So now we're, we're kind of entering kind of xenophobic areas. Yeah. The article does go on to note that Mel B and Emma tried to protest Derry's thoughts on Europe, but were interrupted by Victoria, who snapped, do you not care if some bloke in Germany is making decisions for us? <laughs> Mel C then said, the middle class are the worst. She went on, we shouldn't be prejudiced against any background, poor or aristocratic. The middle class are the worst. We like the aristocrats. I just don't even... I don't even know I'm what we're really saying. I'm really trying to figure out what Mel C has against the middle class. I'm also just trying to work out what PR manager thought that this was like going to be a good <laughs> thing. Now, because this interview was held just ahead of the national election between a conservative John Majors and the eventual winner and future Prime Minister Tony Blair, the girls were also asked what they thought of the candidates. Victoria took it upon herself to say, we would never vote Labor. This is the other thing. They're kind of talking on behalf of each other, which is also kind of tough terrain. It's also just not very self-aware. I would never vote Labor. Yeah. We would never There's vote. Five if someone of you, said that for me, I'd be I like, don't care what they said. If they just made any kind of emphatic statement on the group's politics and I'm sitting there, I would be like, fuck off. Yeah, totally. Now, of course, probably the most enduring and famous quotes from this interview were their thoughts on Margaret Thatcher. Now, for listeners who might need a refresher, Margaret Thatcher was a conservative British politician who was the longest serving prime minister of the country in the 20th century. She held office from 1979 to 1990. Now, of course, Margaret Thatcher has a very polarising and complicated legacy as a politician. As per Al Jazeera, to her supporters on the right, Thatcher was the woman who saved a country floundering in post-imperial decline. To her critics, Thatcher was a force of devastation who destroyed British industry and laid waste to communities that have never recovered. Which brings us to, what the hell did the Spice Girls think of Margaret Thatcher? Exactly. Here's what Jerry said. We Spice Girls are true Thatcherites. (laughs) (laughs) Thatcher was the first Spice Girl, the pioneer of our ideology, girl power. Ideals. She had ideals, all right. She was the first Spice Girl. Now, apparently this statement from Jerry was met with unanimous declarations of approval from the other girls, like Wicked and We Love Maggie. <laughs> How's this from Mel B, who said, I like the woman. Even if her policies were hard-headed, socialism is bad. You work for your living and you deserve to keep what you've earned. Like, they were literally saying anything they wanted to say about politics. I've never seen anything like this, really. Yeah, and I'm wondering, as we're talking, I wonder if any listeners will be saying, girls, who cares? Like, is it that bad? And to those people, I don't know. I think I'm more just surprised that such a commercial pop group, which we'll really get into in this episode, the commercialization of the Spice Girls. I'm just surprised. I'm really befuddled that this was a move. Uh, no, it's it's the only reason I wanted to talk about this is I actually can't make sense of much of it. Like yeah. why as you say, one of the most mainstream pop groups in the world and commercial pop groups in the world would just would just say anything like this. Now, obviously, the quotes from this interview made front page news. I mean, people were already talking about the Spice Girls, but because this interview was so candid and, and slightly rogue for them, people just couldn't get their heads around it. As per The Independent at the time, it would be difficult to imagine Baroness Thatcher in hot pants, a spandex vest and patent leather high boots, but yesterday that is precisely what we were invited to do. <laughs> in an interview likely to cause panic in equal measure at Tory Central Office and Labor HQ, the Honourable Lady was named as the first Spice Girl by the band that is influencing an entire generation of first-time voters. In this same article, the original interviewer, Simon Montefiore, was asked 
asked to comment. He told The Independent, the Spice Girls are influencing a whole generation of youngsters and no one really knows how that generation thinks. It was a very pleasant interview. These are no bimbos. I expected them to espouse typical left-wing pop star politics with a few pathetic ideas on the legalisation of heroin and some fuzzy thoughts on individuality and community policies. But I found them bright, articulate and with a full grasp of the great issues of the day. The tabloids were a little more sensationalist. This Rolling Stone article from 1997 wrapped up, it really summed up much of what was being said at the time. Rolling Stone wrote, the newspapers went crazy. The Spice Girls were on the front pages of all UK tabloids and there were articles for weeks in every newspaper debating the significance of the girls' political positions. Yeah, the girls were pretty shocked about the impact of Jerry's quote about Margaret Thatcher. Mel C said, they were talking about us in the House of Commons. It was ridiculous. There was another exchange between Jerry and Mel B that summed up it all pretty perfectly. Jerry said, what is the state of the government if, and then Mel B kind of finished her question for her saying, if they're talking about us. To that, Jerry replied, exactly. If we can have an influence, that's terrible. Mm. I mean, goes without saying, it's kind of like a little foolish to kind of make such outlandish quotes and then step back and be like, what? Why are people listening to me when you are giving the interview because you're the most famous pop group in the world? You're speaking to a newspaper. Yeah. What, what's the point in doing an interview if you don't want people to care about what you say? You can't deny the influence. <laughs> now, as polling day approached, the Spice Girls' names were invoked over and over. On the campaign trail, the nation's potential leaders faced Spice Girl quizzes. Tony Blair had listed Say You'll Be There as one of his 10 favourite records of 96. He managed to name three Spice Girls. John Major was asked to identify the Spice Girls too. He could name two. Two of five. Yes. Yeah, it's just like they became part of this election. Yeah. So after this interview, the Spice Girls decided to keep their political opinions largely to themselves. For what it's worth, though, Jerry has always had a soft spot for Margaret Thatcher. In 2013, when Margaret Thatcher passed away, Jerry posted a tribute to her on Twitter that read as follows. Thinking of our first lady of girl power, Margaret Thatcher, <laughs> a greengrocer's daughter who taught me anything is possible, X. After pretty intense backlash from <laughs> Thatcher critics, Jerry followed up with another tweet that read, I'm sorry if I offended you. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> she really does think I mean, that she, Margaret Thatcher was, sat in her office one day and was like, this is the moment I invent girl, girl power. power. Yeah. Now in 2022, 26 years after the Spectator interview was published and nine years after Margaret Thatcher died, Mel C actually set the record straight on her own views. As per The Independent, the band was about celebrating individuality. So Mel C found it frustrating when it was assumed that its members only had one opinion. So she doesn't think that Maggie T was the first Spice Girl? Absolutely not, she says, amused. Jerry in the past was very vocal about her support for Margaret Thatcher. I'm from Liverpool. It was a name that was not celebrated in that region. They were never the thoughts or feelings that I shared. People knowing me from the things that I do are quite aware of what person I am. I don't think people think I'm a raging Tory. The piece went on. It was slightly misguided and so inappropriate for them to be speaking to the spectator in the first place, Mel C said, but another instance of being pushed in a hundred directions by their team. She said, there have been a couple of times in my career where I've been nervous about going home and that was one of them. Really interesting. Despite the 
political controversy. By early 1997, the world had descended into full-blown Spice mania. The Spice Girls had just dropped their first album, Spice, and it couldn't have gone better, at least commercially anyway. Yeah, now you probably remember a bunch of songs from the album. You've got Wanna Be, Say You'll Be There, To Become One, Who Do You Think You Are, and If You Can't Dance. I mean... What are you picking if you have to pick a song out of that? Um... Who do you think you are is an underrated bop. I quite like Say You'll Be There. Yeah, interesting. I mean, but honestly, who's, going, who's going past Wannabe? Yeah. I was just trying to pretend that I wasn't going to be basic. But We're so niche. Yeah. <laughs> now, Spice debuted at number one on the UK charts after selling 114,000 copies in the first week and made its debut at number six in the US, but it eventually did climb to number one on the Billboard 200. They had conquered the US as well as the UK. Incredible. So Spice Mania, which we will call the yassified version of Beatlemania, totally. meant that Spice was a total number one smash around the world and fans literally could not get enough of this band and that's where Spice Girl merchandise comes in. So after the album became a global hit, the Spice Girls really leaned into merchandising. Demand for anything related to them became so high that they were licensing their likeness and their brand to anything and everything. Yeah, if you thought Mary Kate and Ashley were merched, wait to hear about <laughs> the Jojo Spice Girls. Siwa. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now the thing is, in terms of a Spice Girls official merch, there was everything from dolls, individually packaged sets of printed photos, which were kind of apparently inspired by football cards, stationery, clothing, home decor, and more. On top of this, the Spice Girls entered into a frankly unprecedented amount of partnerships with other brands. Some of these collabs included an official Polaroid camera called Spice Cam a series of individual scents inspired by each Spice Girl for Impulse. That one's banger. I do yeah. like that one. Food, including but not limited to frozen pizzas <laughs> and Cadbury chocolates and so much more. It's not exactly glossy. Like a frozen pizza with your I mean, brand name slapped it, on it. It's not glossy until you buy a house for that. <laughs> now, one of their biggest licensing deals was their partnership with Pepsi, which included a specially branded can and free CD, which featured Step To Me, which was kind of like a bonus track from Spice. This was the first collab promo deal of its time within the music industry and it was hugely successful. Around 600,000 copies of the CD were redeemed after fans purchased the Pepsi cans. It's insane. The Spice Girls recorded a special song as well for the launch of the new British TV channel, Channel 5. Mm. They featured in print and TV ads for the station and they were reportedly paid around £500,000 for that partnership. They also appeared in multiple ads for Walker's Crisps and appeared individually on packets of the chips. A major selling point for brands when it came to partnering with the Spice Girls was this you got to collect them all factor, yeah. like Pokemon cards. Well, it makes a lot of sense, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Being five of them. But it wasn't like everybody thought this was a wonderful way of doing business. And after the break, we're going to speak about the critics. So while demand for everything Spice related was at an all-time high in 1997, the Spice Girls did have their critics, as you said, Zara. So... This is kind of like 1997, obviously we've got the rise of the Spice Girls, but we've also got the rise of the internet coinciding with that. And early adopters of the internet 
were quickly learning that it was a wonderful place to complain about everything and anything. Yeah, as per Rolling Stone at the time, the true nexus of spice hating is naturally on the internet. On one site, you may indulge in interactive anti-spice fun by playing the game Slap a Spice Girl. The rules are Spice Girl simple, the site explains. Every time you hear one of those awful voices and spot a spicy airhead popping up, give it a resounding virtual slap. Mm. Now, while there were always going to be baseless trolls, some of the critics kind of had a point when it came, I guess, to the commercialization of the band. There were many people in the music industry and the media who did have an issue with the sheer amount of merchandise the Spice Girls were producing. In a piece published at the time, headline Five Little Rich Girls for The Independent, writer Chris Blackhurst wrote Mish about his own daughter's relationship with the Spice Girls. Yeah, he wrote this. At home that evening, my eight-year-old daughter badgered me for money. All her friends at school, she said, were collecting Spice Girl pictures. They cost 99p for a set of eight from newsagents and there are 120 to collect in total. That is £15 for the lot, I calculated. My daughter told me, well, you won't let me join the fan club. Natalie's a member and that only costs £10. The piece went on. The making of the Spice Girls shows that music is less important than marketing. In fact, they are in an ersatz ensemble put together with the overriding purpose of making money for them and their backers. Behind those pouting poses, cheeky grins and girl power salutes, there is a program of cynical media manipulation and calculating exploitation. Mm. I mean, what's the big concern? Yeah, look... What like what's your worry? The worry is these young these girls. girls are costing me thirty thirty dollars. Yeah, I think that the concern is, oh my god, young girls are asking their parents for money. It's like, okay, just say no. Like, why is that suddenly the Spice Girls' fault? It's 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 women making money. Also, what's the difference between this and as you said earlier, football cards? Yeah, football exactly. cards. I'm under no illusion that they would have been super cheap. A hundred percent. And I, I understand that there are conversations to be had about the commercialization of Over girl power. Overconsumption and all that kind of stuff. But more so the commercialization of girl power, which yeah. we will get to in a second. But generally, I think people had an issue with this because it was women that they wanted to consider not talented who were making buckets of cash. As per Slate at the time, the Spice Girls music is an afterthought. The Spice Girls represent the Jurassic Parkification of pop. In the movie industry, spin-off products now account for a huge percentage of profits. The Spice Girls bring the same spin-off sensibility to music. Sure, there were Beatles lunchboxes and Michael Jackson gloves, but they were peripheral to the music. Life is different in Spice World. If there is a product that 12-year-olds use, there will be a Spice Girls version of it in your mall by Thanksgiving. A toy company's stock rose 20% when it won the license to distribute Spice girl action figures. I gotta say, I just find a lot of this a little bit snobbish. Oh, it's so dumb. Like, I don't actually care. And regardless, the Spice Girls were absolutely raking it in. In fact, in that same Slate article from 1997, they reported that the band stood to make an estimated $300 million by the end of the year. Apply inflation to this. Yeah, it's crazy. And They're it's a billion dollar wild. band. Yeah, close to. Obviously, that's a... <laughs> it's not my inflation math. But it no be- one looking... Yeah, I'm trying to figure out. Consider it's 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. I, someone yeah. do the maths for that. Yeah. DM us, yeah, please. Yeah. But still, obviously, it had to be divided by the band members, but this is like a colossal amount of money. And this is a year into being a band. Yes. Like, like this is going from earning nothing to earning 300 million. It's insane. Now, when faced with this criticism directly during interviews, the girls completely shrugged it off. In another rather chaotic interview with the UK music TV program Ozone, the presenter asked the girls if they felt they were at risk of being overexposed, to which Victoria replied, do you mean we are selling out? 
Yes. <laughs> she was joking, but I think it's really indicative of how they were responding to criticism at the time, which was like, I mean, if you want to criticize me for it, sure, I'm laughing all the way to the bank. And I think they probably truly felt like maybe people were just jealous. Yeah. Like, like the, okay, yeah, we're making buckets of money. Sorry about I that. know, 100%. <laughs> so we've got to talk about what is arguably the final piece of the Spice Girls branding puzzle, and it is girl power. We've touched on it a little bit, but let's do a bit of a deep dive. The slogan, the ideals, and the massive, massive brand of girl power. In the same week that Wannabe was released, and I know we're taking this back just ever so slightly, it's interesting to note that a UK duo named Shampoo also released a song called Girl Power. And it was this punky track that featured lyrics like, I don't want to be a boy, I want to be a girl. Yeah, now apparently Jerry came across this song and she thought the phrase girl power was absolutely genius. According to the book Spice Girls by Sean Smith, when she discovered the phrase girl power through this song she reportedly said I saw it and I thought oh my god that is so good now to be fair the phrase girl power wasn't invented by this shampoo track it can actually be traced back to the early 90s with its roots in the riot girl feminist punk rock movement before the shampoo song was released in 96 now for context one of these bands a band called bikini kill released a zine called girl power in 91 which is widely considered to be the first use of the phrase in this context mm. now riot girls might have started Girl Power, but it was Jerry Halliwell who turned it into a slogan and slogan it became. Girl Power became the Spice Girls brand and above any kind of deeper meaning or feminist roots, for the Spice Girls, it was just kind of like a fabulous catchphrase, Mish. Yeah, here's Emma, or Baby Spice, explaining what Girl Power meant to the band in an interview with MTV. Girl power is about being individual, being whoever you want to be, right. wearing your short skirts, your underbras and your makeup, oh, but having something to say right. as well. It's kind of uh, insane when you go back and watch some of these clips from the Spice Girls. It's like how often girl power would be randomly dropped into interviews was stunning. Oh, it wasn't subtle. It wasn't like they were like, oh, we we'll, we'll subtly move girl power. They would... In the middle of shows, just shout girl, girl power. It was like the chant. It was the mantra. It was the religion. Yes, exactly. It became their catchphrase. And they they knew it was an incredible brand piece. And they fully lent in. And I think it was definitely powerful. And I think it definitely helped promote the brand and the band. But, of course, them embracing girl power was met with a bunch of criticism. Now, I think a lot of that criticism has kind of developed in the intervening decades. In 2019, the New York Times ran a pretty succinct summary of the conversation that's been underway for 25 years now. It read, Another frequent target of criticism was the group's message of girl power, which was promoted not just in their music, but also through their many marketing deals with brands like Pepsi and Chopper Chop Lollipops. Activists raised concerns that the brand was exploiting feminism for commercial ends. Many commentators were very conscious of how feminism and pro-women sentiment was manipulated and weaponized, particularly by the media, said Andy Zeisler, who co-founded the feminist pop culture magazine Bitch in 1996, the same year the Spice Girls made their debut. Mm. I mean, the Spice Girls themselves, I guess, never really settled on whether the phrase was representative of feminism or just like a fun thing to say. Mm, I mean, it's the 90s, right? Yeah. As per stylist, they reported even the Spice Girls distanced themselves from the feminist movement, declaring in their book Girl Power, 1997, that feminism has become a dirty word. Girl power is just a 90s way of saying it. 
where you can give feminism a kick up the ass, which I'm confused by because when they're saying, oh, well, girl power is just the 90s way of saying feminism, but then also we can give feminism a kick up the ass. Are we saying this is a synonym for feminism? Are we saying it's the rebranded better version of feminism? Are we saying we actually don't like feminism at all? I think they were saying they didn't like feminism, but they did like girl power, which obviously means the same thing. But I think I think it's very kind of indicative of where conversations about feminism were at in the mainstream in the 90s. Reflecting on the meaning of the slogan herself in the years following, Mel C said, at first we wanted to make music and have fun and travel the world and do all those fun things, but the messaging gave us more motivation. We were expressing ourselves as young women in the mid-90s. It was giving fuel to this fire. What is it? Is it feminism for cute privileged girls like feminism in a non-threatening way that feminism was associated with like bra burning and women who didn't want to maybe subscribe to feminine ideals this was we lean so heavily into feminine ideals and that is our power that we're so girly I think so I also think it's kind of like the beginner's guide to feminism and I think the thing about this is like obviously I think those conversations are very worth having about how helpful is it to have feminism co-opted by this girl power phrase and for you to sell all the merch under the sun, you know, using it. But then the other part of me is I would be lying if I didn't say I think that there would be a whole host of young women who grew up in the 90s who really resonated with this girl power and, really found, liked it. and found a lot of confidence in it. And so I don't I don't think it would be fair to say it's all good or all bad. I think it wasn't perfect, but I think it probably did give people, young women, confidence to be like, yeah, I don't mind being a chick. Yeah, and also I don't I wonder how deeply it needs to be considered. I genuinely that, don't know. I don't, I don't know. know if I if we have to deep it. I know a lot of people at the time did, but I personally as a little girl really loved girl power. I still love girl power. I still look at people doing cool things and even if it's not actively making the world a more just place, I still enjoy it. Like I still derive positivity from it. But then I can also totally appreciate why others don't. It's at this point in the timeline we have to talk about one of the Spice Girls' biggest and more unpredictable fans. It was King Charles III, who at this point was actually the freshly divorced Prince Charles. Yeah, so it was May 1997 at the peak of Spice Everything that the Spice Girls performed at a royal gala for the Prince's Trust charity. Now, at some point throughout the evening, they met Prince Charles for the first time. Now, of course, when a person meets a member of the royal family, there's pretty strict protocol in place for what you can do and you can't say and how you shake their hand and what you how you bow in front of Stand them. Stand upright, have nice posture. For example, you're not really supposed to touch the royal you're greeting. However, <laughs> the spy skills threw all of that out the fucking window when they met <laughs> Prince Charles in 97. And it actually was a gamble that that paid off quite well for them. Well, this is the rogueness we've been talking about, right? Here's a wrap-up from Time magazine about what went down when the Spice Girls met Prince Charles. Both Mel B and Jerry Halliwell breached royal protocol by giving Prince Charles big kisses on his cheeks. Mel B asked if they could score a dinner invite and recommended he get his tongue pierced, (laughs) while Ginger even told the prince she found him very sexy. Outlets reported that she also pinched his bum, but she has since corrected that she gave him a pat. The video evidence is inconclusive. In any case, it was a memorable first encounter. 
Like, the video footage of this is so funny. I still don't know if she gave him a pat or a pinch. I also don't know if it matters because, truthfully, she touched his bum. <laughs> and it was just completely outrageous. Now, during their meeting, the girls posed for photos with the prince, who at this point now had red lipstick kisses all over his face, and made peace signs with their hands, to which Prince Charles said, what's all this business? <laughs> and to which the girls then replied, it's girl power, you got to do the girl power. It's just like... It, it, it's just like a really absurdist kind of meeting, but it worked. Like you've got to hand it to them. They knew how to create absolutely iconic pop culture moments. They just have it. They've got star power. They're so cheeky and so charismatic. They make shit like this happen. It's fun. It's fun. It's, fun. it's not that serious. No, nothing was that serious for them. It was like incredibly joyful. Mel C actually gave an interview last year about this Prince Charles meeting. She told people, at the time, I was one of the shyer members of the band. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're doing it. But now I'm really proud that the girls did that because I think that's part of the reason the world fell in love with the Spice Girls. We were kind of doing what everybody wished they could do and it was never with malice. It was always with the smile. Now that Charles is our king, it kind of makes it even more naughty, those naughty Spice Girls. <laughs> I, love I love that. It. The Spice Girls actually crossed paths with King Charles quite a lot over the following years. A quick aside, they even met him in Johannesburg, South Africa, where they also met anti-apartheid activist Nelson Mandela, a real clashing of different universes here. As per Time magazine, Mandela and Charles wax poetic about the importance of the group's message of girl power. They are my heroes, Mandela said lightly, according to the BBC, calling it one of the greatest moments of his life, <laughs> while Charles also lavished them with praise not to be outdone by Mandela. It is the second greatest moment in my life, the prince said of hanging out with the Spice Girls. The greatest was the first time that I met them. <laughs> so you've got these, like, you've got Nelson Mandela <laughs> and Prince Charles, who, of course, are saying these quotes tongue-in-cheek, but are knowing that it's, like, incredibly good publicity. Yeah. Get around the girls. Get around the girls. Don't be... A, don't be the uptight, serious men about this. This is an opportunity for lightness. Yeah, and it's good for you. It's yeah, good, it's, it's good, good for, for how people see you. It's just outrageous. <laughs> now, in 1997, of course, we have to talk about the way that the British tabloids covered the Spice Girls. As we know from previous episodes of Scandal, the tabloid press, particularly in the UK, was a chaotic, brutal mess. I mean, it still kind of is in many ways. But for the Spice Girls, you know, when you have five raucous young women at a pretty unprecedented level of fame, the tablets, you could say, were pretty out of control. Yeah. In July 97, Rolling Stone US ran a lengthy feature of the Spice Girls, which demonstrated firstly just how unfathomably famous they were and secondly, how dogged and overwhelming -ish the British tabloids were in their pursuit of them. Yeah, here's a quote from the piece. It is perhaps hard for America to understand quite how famous Spice Girls have become in the rest of the world. In their homeland, for instance, the Spice Girls are in the papers every single day. I borrow the file of their British press clips for a single week between March 7 and March 13. The pile is about an inch thick. There are 141 newspaper stories about them and many more from various magazines. This is a typical week. It went on. The Spice Girls wake up each day under a deluge of feedback. There is stupid gossip, sordid secrets, old photos. The tabloid's evergreen favourites are finding a new set of topless or nude photos of Jerry, who did a little glamour modelling when she was younger, or a new set of Emma's childhood advertising photos, looking blonde and smiley and product friendly. 
There's trivia, weighty pieces analysing the Spice Girls' significance, furthering an endless national debate over whether they are a good thing or a bad thing. The piece went on, rumours the occasional scandal. In December, Mel C was faced with the headline, Spice Girls' cocaine shame, all-night binges shocked for young fans, which claimed for her a past of various debaucheries. I don't think anybody took any notice of it, did they? She said, apparently unconcerned. Hot news about what the Spice Girls did yesterday or what they will do today or tomorrow. My favourite story was when Jerry got a false fingernail stuck in her ear on a video shoot. It made the front page of The Sun, Britain's best, Britain's best selling tabloid. Sorry, I'm getting my tongue tied now. And on the inside was a competition to give away what the paper said was the actual recovered false fingernail. I hate to disappoint the lucky winner and alert the rock collectibles industry, but it was a fraud. Oh my God. Another lucrative angle the tabloids took when it came to the Spice Girls was, of course, the kiss and tell stories. Mm. Old ex-boyfriends of the girls coming out of the woodwork to spill all their secrets about their now famous ex for quite a sizable sum of cash. Yeah, and all of the girls suffered this at various points from various exes. Let's have a look at one ex, though, that we have heard of briefly already. It's Victoria Beckham's ex-fiancé, the electrician Mark Wood. In 1997, The People not to be confused with People magazine, this is a UK tabloid, ran an exclusive interview with Mark with the headline, I was sexy Victoria's spice boy. The interview covered, you know, how they met, what their relationship was like, how they broke up. It included this quote from Mark, Victoria and I are still close friends, but things are over between us. Like, (laughs) okay. No shit. She's with David Beckham now. (laughs) why would you be talking to the people if you were still together? The thing is, like, this interview was relatively tame in comparison to what it could have been, but he would have still been paid quite a sum for this short interview. And it's the way that they still frame these interviews as if there should be some shame in having an ex in your past. Now, during an interview with Rolling Stone, Mel B said one of her exes was paid £20,000 to share his story. Here's a paragraph from that profile. By the Spice Girls' own estimate, in the time it's taken them to release four singles, 13 different ex-boyfriends have kissed and told to the British tabloids. None of the girls have been spared. In Emma's case, she has only had three boyfriends and each of them have spilt the beans. Everybody has a price, says Victoria. I'm going to get them to sign a secrecy form from now on, says Mel B. The piece went on. I met Mel B a few months ago in the morning when the first big love of her life, a soccer player, sold his story. It's like selling your soul to the devil, isn't it? She sighed. He's driving around Leeds in a flash car, so let him get on with it. What can I do about it? I could quite easily get someone to go and beat him up, or I could be really gutted and dwell on how sad it is and the good times we had. I'm quite cool, actually. I'm not going to make a fuss about some little story that's earned him 20 grand. I've got a million, so what? Iconic, 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 iconic. Mel B, some of Mel B's quotes as well are just so no bullshit. Oh, it's... And just, like, so pragmatic. And, again, played into why the world loved them so much. He's got 20 grand, I've got a million, so, so what? what? Like, it's beautiful stuff. I love you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, we're not exaggerating when we say that 97 was a mammoth year for the girls because there was still so much more to come. The Spice Girls actually fired their hotshot manager, Simon Fuller, in November 97. It was a huge move. There are conflicting and, to be honest, confusing reasons as to why they did this at such a pivotal time when they'd achieved so much success together. But here are the basics. Simon Fuller had the Spice Girls working extremely hard. According to Spice Girls, the book we keep referencing by Sean Smith, He had them working from 5.30 in the morning to 11 o'clock at night 
every single day. That was writing and recording music, doing promo and filming their movie Spice World simultaneously. Yeah, apparently around this time, Mel B asked Simon for a day off a week and he said no. Jerry apparently asked him for a week off for a brief break away from the Spice Girl commitments. He also said no to this. The girls also felt that Simon wasn't doing enough to help keep their private lives private. After the really tragic death of Diana, who at that point was the most pursued figure in the British tabloids at the time, there was something of like a vacancy Mm. left in the tabloids, which you can imagine. And after Diana died, the paparazzi's pursuit of the Spice Girls became even more dogged than before. They became the perfect candidates to fill that space, particularly Victoria, now that she was with David Beckham. Yeah. The stress of their gruelling work schedule and constant press attention took a toll on their mental health, as it would. Victoria, Jerry and Mel C have all come out in the decades following to discuss how they actually struggled with eating disorders at this time, with Mel C adding that she actually struggled with depression too. Even though they were so successful commercially and financially behind the scenes they were beginning to resent Simon for the situation they were in there was also a pretty uncomfortable rumor that Simon and Emma Bunton so Baby Spice had been in a relationship which made the professional relationship untenable that's never been confirmed but we did want to just kind of put that on the record because it would also explain if that maybe went awry that the band would go oh we need to do something about this well either that relationship going awry or the fact that there's a tabloid rumor making things awkward Awkward, and wondering where the fuck that tabloid rumor comes from as well like I can imagine anything like this creating tension in November 1997 the Spice Girls fired Simon Fuller they all agreed this was the right course of action but once again it was Jerry and Mel B who really spearheaded the move apparently this took Simon completely by surprise he was annoyed but it didn't seem to bother him too much looking back on his firing he said my initial reaction was shock and fine okay sod them they're missing out on having the best manager in the world After this, Simon actually went on to put together S Club 7. He also managed many other artists, including Amy Winehouse and Carrie Underwood. He also created the pop idol brand, like American Idol and Australian Idol. So he was pretty fine in the end. Simon Fuller thrived. It's all good. Yeah. Without Simon and his team who took care of everything for the Spice Girls day to day, including their future business plans, They, as a band, were now facing a lot of work to put together a new management team. In Jerry's 2001 autobiography, she wrote this. Even though we still had a movie and a new album to launch, Simon had to go. The others roared in agreement. The greatest irony about sacking Simon had been the fact that it had been triggered by my not being given a week off. Yet it made us work twice as hard to prove we didn't need him. Yeah. Now, we don't have a heap of detail on how they managed to make it work, but it seems that after a very short period of dividing duties amongst them, which their level of fame is insane, they established like a full management team. So they hired a whole bunch of people to look after you know, their management. The timing of Simon's firing, though, was extremely chaotic in very Spice Girls fashion, seeing as they had a full-on movie coming out in December 1997 and a world tour scheduled to begin in 1998. Let's touch on the movie first. It was called Spice World. Yes, the same name as their second album, so it's a bit confusing. And it was released, as they said, in December 1997. If you haven't seen this film... 
It's basically <laughs> such a hilarious concept. It's basically a comedy mockumentary where the Spice Girls play themselves. It was directed by Bob Spears, who was popular and well-respected for directing the cult classic Absolutely Fabulous. Yeah. Now, Bob Spears isn't the only prestigious name involved in the making of this movie either. The celebrity cameo list for the movie is long and includes the names Elton John, Bob Geldof, Stephen Fry, Jennifer Saunders, Roger Moore, and heaps more. Once again, it just goes to show the power and the pull the Spice Girls had at the time. Obviously, with all of that in the ingredients list, the film was a massive box office hit. However, I think we can maybe predict how the critics responded to this movie. Yeah, and like, dare I say, fair enough. (laughs) As for the New York Times, perhaps nothing illustrates the conundrum of the Spice Girls more starkly than the reception to Spice World, their madcap mockumentary which earned more than $70 million worldwide but received memorably withering reviews. (laughs) Desson Howe in the Washington Post said it was about as awful and shamelessly pandering as a fanzine movie could dare to be. In the Orlando Sentinel, the critic Jay Boyer described the movie as akin to being kicked to death by a pack of wild (laughs) Barbies. The piece also quoted notable film critic Roger Ebert, who at the time compared it to the Beatles' 1964 classic, A Hard Day's Night. Now, to be fair to Spice World, the whole structure of the movie is like a massive homage to A Hard Day's Night in the first place. But here's what Roger thought. The huge difference, of course, is that the Beatles were talented, while let's face it, the Spice Girls could be duplicated by any five women under the age of 30 standing in line at Dunkin' Donuts. Fuck off. This is the frustrating thing about, and I think we've touched on this a little bit in this episode, but to say it more explicitly, about the media's perception of the Spice Girls in that they were untalented. There is something about being a female pop star that people assumed that anyone could do it, when in reality the thing that made the Spice Girls so great is that no one else could. If anyone in the line at Dunkin' Donuts could do it, why haven't we seen 50 to 1,000 replicas of the Spice Girls achieve the same level of success since? They are still the most successful girl band in Britain's history. It's been how many years on? 25, 26? If that was the truth... Why wouldn't we all head out there and make $300 million for ourselves in a year? They were magic and you can't just like throw magic together. Now, over the last 25 years, though, the Spice Girls movie has definitely become more of like a campy cult classic. (laughs) Reflecting on the film for the New York Times, Eleanor Stanford wrote, The film is much smarter and more self-aware than I once gave it credit for. It pokes fun at the mainstream cultural institutions the group's success brought them into contact with, the movie industry, London's tabloids, the music world, the British class structure. Best of all, Spice World satirises the Spice Girls themselves. Mm. Mish, we're going to have to leave it there for now. Because very soon the Spice Girls are about to go on a world tour and they wouldn't last very long on that tour before one of them decided to up and leave. Yeah, I cannot wait. We have covered the rise and the success of the Spice Girls in the next episode. We are covering their capitulation. I didn't realise it was all so quick. Everything happened in the blink of an eye. We are so pumped to talk about it. Yeah, guys, if you want to listen to that part right now, you can all you have to do is subscribe to Shaymore on Spotify or Apple right now. A big thank you as always to our researcher Eilish Gilligan. A big thank you as well to our audio editor Annabelle Lee. And a big happy new year to all of you. Happy 2024. 2024, guys. Girl power all the way. It's so obvious we're not <laughs> recording this in 2024. Like crawling to the end of 2023 But still. uh happy to be virtually there. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
Shameless Media. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.